<coughs> so we're just going to you know, pick out some of those questions and try to answer those. And uh, I just thought, is insight an analytical process or spontaneous? Or both? And if analytical, how is that conducted? It's, it's really, it's both. And, you know, we have given for, you know, some examples about, you know, how, uh, so, how some investigations can be done. For example, today the meditation, guided meditation on death, it doesn't necessarily, you know, include thinking a lot, but to just drop in some suggestions, like today when I was reading out that those different suggestions about you know, looking at death and dying, and then you're just, just dropping that into the body and mind when it's still, like dropping it into a still pond, you know, a stone, and then just, it ripples, it makes ripple effect on the surface, and it goes deep into the, you know, onto the bottom of that pond. And the same, you know, when the body and mind are still, we can just drop in a suggestion or drop in a question and see what happens. So that's an analytical way of meditating. And, uh, you know, and we never know when an insight happens. Because, you know, all of the previous hours and years of meditation you have been putting in, suddenly, you know, it comes together and an insight arises. It's not necessary on the cushion, but m might be when you're working in the kitchen or when you're uh, having a shower or whenever. So it, it's... You know, it's mysterious when that happens. But meditation is certainly both, you know, analytical and spontaneous. And, but they kind of support each other. And, you know, in some teachings or some traditions lean more to one side and others more to another side. Simply, you know, because this is what has happened probably in the, you know, process of practice of, of the founder of that tradition or the teacher of that lineage and it's different for different people and then you, we usually feel attracted you know, to a tradition which is kind of more in sync with our own experience but they're both they're both occurring and there is no clear you know, dividing line between those Okay. How do we let go of fear and worry for our children, especially when they're little? So, um, I have a son and a daughter, and um, they're middle-aged people now. And I have two grandchildren. One's nine and one's six. And it is possible to let go of worry even though when they're small, especially, there's so much that we need to be there for them with and, and think of the ways to keep them safe. And all of that is part of the, the job of the parent and important because we have a, a particular role and relationship and um, it's important to fulfill it to the best of our ability. And that is uh, highly imperfect. It's an incredibly complex task. And there's kama. And the more familiar we become with kama, the more we can see it when a child's born, that they come in with a whole package. And they are unique. And they are the product of many lifetimes. And so we don't have control over what happens to them as much as we may try. And it's important to frequently remind ourselves that our support for them goes as far as it can go, but no farther. Even when we make the best plans and, and do the best we can, things will still go wrong sometimes. And that's nature. 
So it is important to reflect, regardless of whether you have children, regardless of where, what kind of life any of us are living or where we're at in it, to reflect upon the impermanence, the uncertainty of everything. Ajahn Chah talked about not sure. You know, it's, it's not sure. And this living being that you're so connected to has its own process, and at some point it's going to die. And we're there more as the supporters of that process uh, of them to try to help them develop in the best way that they can to use this human birth the best they can you can they can but in some sense if they die tomorrow as opposed to 40 years from now that's still the ongoing process of their their karmic stream and that karmic stream will go on to other lifetimes now you may not, you know, be ready yet for that multiple lifetime idea, but we certainly can all acknowledge the lack of control that we have. So some people deal with that by having faith in a divine creator that's somehow going to protect them, but that doesn't really work either because we're not protected from aging sickness and death or death at any age. So it's, it's like you love them, you care for them, and you continue to practice meditation as much as you can, even though it's hard as a parent. Practice developing wisdom. Practice remembering that they have their own life, their own process. And we don't know what that is. And the more we practice in this way to really look at the true nature of things, the closer we get. And one day there might be a real shift in our understanding that helps us to see that we don't have to be attached. We don't have to cling in order to be loving. And in fact, the ability to love is so much greater when that clinging drops. So these are the things to reflect upon. And when it hurts, that's the suffering the Buddha was pointing at every time, no matter what the cause is. And he wanted us to look at that suffering, turn towards it, and be with it and understand where it arises. So that's... That's how we let go of fear and worry, developing the mind, developing in the Dhamma. Uh, <clears throat> Can you please expound on how past unskillful actions, unintentional in brackets, can be counteracted by skillful action given that we are still subject to karma from those actions? I mean, you know, if we... There's a good example, for example, in, in the suttas about somebody called Angulimala, who was a mass murderer who, is, who has killed like 999 people and was just on the way to kill one more person. And, and you know, the Buddha kind of stopped him from doing this. And then Angulimala became a monk. And you know, whenever he was going on an arms round, people in the village would kind of throw stones at him, and and then he went to the Buddha and asked, you know, how should he deal with it? And the Buddha said, "Bury it, Brahman." He said, "You know, this is the the repercussions of your past actions. You have to just bear it." But then at the same time, he was cultivating, you know, good qualities because he was he was a monk and he was practicing meditation and he was not harming any longer anybody. So, you know, he was dealing with the past karma, but at the same time he was creating wholesome karma and then in the end he got enlightened. It's at least written in the suttas. But we can do that in a small way also. For example, you know, we might have been addicted to some substances and then decide to stop. We have the repercussions of, of the withdrawal. But it doesn't mean, you know, that we have to 
have to go back to the previous ways of doing things. We just bear with the repercussions and at the same time, you know, um, cultivate skillful actions. So it's, it's pretty simple, you know, it's not just in a meditation practice like that, but it's a very common, you know, way how people stop with things, you know, which harm their health and they can't eat sugar anymore, they can't eat wheat, or they should stop smoking, all of that. It's, you know, when we have the craving, that's the repercussions of the past actions. And then not giving into the craving is cultivating skillful actions. And I'm, I'm sure there's nobody in this room who hasn't experienced something like that, you know, when they stop doing something they were used to or had to stop because something happened. So for example, even coming here on the retreat, I'm sure they had to give up a few things you usually do when you're at home and they're feeling the pull of the habit and not going with it. That's, you know, that's that experience. And it's very, very central, you know, to the spiritual practice when we cultivate you know, new habits, skillful habits, and let go of old ones. It's unpleasant, you know, feeling. But it's, it's worth it. I'm married 30 years, raised a daughter, and have a granddaughter who I'm a large, you know, I'm a large part of her life. I struggle with this desire for deeper practice with long retreats and also a desire to not abandon my granddaughter and stay in her life on a daily or weekly basis, how do I do both? Well, again, um, of course there's an, some element of balance that's needed and it's the case, I believe, that um, we have to take into account how much this person really does need us and be there um, part of the time at least and, and uh, cultivate because your cultivation is going to be a tremendous help to your granddaughter and remember that and also it gives you an opportunity to work with the withdrawal of being with her and, and if, if she sees you doing the things that you feel are important with your life she will learn to do the things that are important to her in her life there are a whole bunch of advantages to doing both in balance. <clears throat> there seems to be more dukkha on retreat. Does it, quote unquote, get worse before it gets better? Or am I just more aware of the dukkha that was already present? <laughs> I think it's, it's both, you know. I think. Um, because there's less distraction here, we become usually more aware, you know, of what's happening, of you know, smaller, uh, um, lesser nuances, you know, of of dukkha. I think we can be aware in, in during retreat, but at the same time, also I think usually it gets worse before it gets better, and. Uh, you know, when it gets really, when, when it gets very dark, then it's this slowly before the sun starts to rise again. So I think that's a very useful uh, image to bear in mind, you know, if we go through a lot of difficult stuff. Yeah. If you notice that your mind is really wandering, should you switch up your practice or just keep going? Um, it depends. And part of what it depends on, I think, is what your meditation object is. If, if your meditation object is too loose, like, oh, I'm just open awareness and I'm watching everything that goes by, uh, which is a meditation I'm not a big fan of, by the way, um, because it, in this case, when the mind starts wandering or getting hooked on those things that are going by, then it may be that you need a stronger container and that stronger container might be a focus on the breath. And again, it doesn't have to mean that you're focusing down on and becoming tight, but that you allow the breath to fill your entire awareness. 
But that's a stronger container than not having a, a, an actual meditation object. So sometimes um, you're using a meditation object that actually works for you. Most of the time your mind is still wandering. Maybe you do have to stick with it and put more extra effort into being present with your object. And at other times, um, after trying that or taking some, um, you know, sort of discern, using some discernment around what your object is and if that's strong enough for what you're dealing with, and then change it. What Eastern teachers would you most recommend studying with? I mean, I, you know, of those teachers who come to the West and who come here to California, I think a uh, Burmese teacher called Ute Chania, who is also teaching here sometimes, I think, or an IMS, and also uh, Sokni Rinpoche, I think, has been teaching here as well. I don't know many other Eastern teachers who come to the Bay Area who give retreats. There isn't many, but that's the two who come to mind. Do you know anybody who teaches retreats? There are a couple of really good Sri Lankan monks. Um, I'm not, I don't think I could come up with their names, but they do teach retreats, and we're starting to see a bit more of that come to the area who are English-speaking. So that's something to look for, but mm -hmm. I can't come up with a name for you right now. And at the Tathagata Center? Um, there, are, there are retreats at the Tathagata Center in San Jose um, that monks offer, and you can watch for what's on their calendar and who's coming. Yeah. So Burmese. that's maybe Burmese mm -hmm. uh, style. And then um, there's a retreat center near Santa Rosa that just hosted a, a Sri Lankan teacher. Anyhow, it's, it's something you can, like if you poke around, you can find... Um, monastics who come through. Can someone reach enlightenment without devoting their entire life to Buddhism? Or are the conditions outside of temples slash monasteries not supportive enough for that goal? Um, you certainly can reach enlightenment without um, renouncing and becoming a monk or a nun or spending your life in the temple. There are many examples of the time of the Buddha of lay people who um, reach various stages of enlightenment. Um, the final stage is said to be one that makes you not want to do anything else but be, monk, be a monk or a nun. But um, that certainly is a long, can be, I don't mean to make it sound like it's so unattainable, but you've developed so much before that that uh, it's... Um, I think not not really an issue. So it is, of course, important to try to shift your life um, to kind of create more supportive conditions for your practice so that you, you are supported by the people around you in keeping good virtue and being able to... Um, live in a way that your mind can be at peace. And that might require, that will require different things for each of you. But there's a lot you can do as a layperson. And the problems don't all go away or the challenges don't all go away when you go into the monastery. Not just because you're carrying them with you, your own set, but also because you're going to live with people. And people are trouble. You know this. <laughs> Even when they're doing their best. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, whether or not you take a monastic path, well, it's not for everybody. Let's put it that way. And um, it's something that's quite, um, quite karmic often. And, and it's if you have a... a Again, to find out more about that, then it's a good idea to spend some time in a monastery. Just visit, stay there for a few days, and then if you like that, stay a couple weeks and on like that, and you'll see how that goes. So the other part of this question is, 
whether we could speak about what um, influenced uh, our decisions to become ayas. And um, I guess either of us could speak about that. So um, I'll just quickly say that for me, the more I dove into Dhamma and learned about what the Buddha taught and learned about the monastic life, and I came kind of came to Buddhism through the monastic door, my son becoming a monk and my spending time in monasteries. That's how I learned about Buddhism. So I never did have like the retreat experience with lay teachers or any of that. And um, I just saw how much integrity there was and my my heart just became more and more um, filled with faith in the Buddha. And I wanted to fully, as fully as possible, live what he prescribed. And so for me, the monastic choice was kind of like, wow, that is the best thing I can do. But that is not everybody's path. So that's... That's what I can say about that. I'm I'm interested in knowing your understanding on how critical thinking intersects with Buddhist beliefs, I can see it in the words of the Dalai Lama, so they are are not in opposition. But since critical thinking is an important part of my education, I'm wondering whether, whether... something that it can be embraced in Buddhist practice. Thank you for your consideration. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, um, wisdom can also be translated as, as discrimination as opposed to judgment. So, you know, it's critical thinking is very important, discriminative thinking, but without necessarily, you know, judging things as good or bad, but to just seeing them for what they are and seeing them rather as wholesome or unwholesome in terms of, you know, Awakening and in terms of creating karma again, you know, if we create unwholesome karma, we create more obstacles in the future for our own practice. So, if we create wholesome actions, if we create wholesome karma, then you know, we create supportive conditions for practice, supportive conditions for insight, supportive conditions for, for wisdom to arise. So yes, critical thinking is important, but the you know the, the the framework which in which the critical thinking happens is is maybe different than in in a spiritual practice than it is in other circumstances. You know, where it's maybe like critical thinking in terms of uh, you know making more money, or critical thinking in terms of writing the best. Uh, or the scientific paper. This is uh, different aims. And the aim, you know, for critical thinking in the practice is to, um, you know, have more insight into the way things are. One doesn't necessarily make a lot of money with that. But sometimes it can happen. (laughs) But it hasn't happened to us. If the suffering caused by turning towards the pain becomes too intense, how do you suggest backing away until ready to face the pain once again? Is it aversion to back away until ready to face the pain, or is this a compassionate act? Uh, There are times when we're facing suffering, and it's, it's very strong that we have to take a break. But I would think of it that way, and sometimes um, when something's really difficult, and you you just need to lay it aside, and and consciously make the determination that you're gonna come back and pick it up again. But you need to go watch this mindless, very sweet movie, <laughs> or 
maybe do something that's more appropriate to the still kind of supporting the processing by calling a, a Dhamma friend or Dhamma teacher. Or, you know, like, just as an example, there was one morning when I was taking care of my mom, and it was actually the day that she couldn't suck out of her water bottle anymore. And it really hit me in a way that, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't, I wasn't overwrought or anything, but I could feel that this feeling was quite strong. And it would be helpful for me to talk to a Dhamma friend, and I called Ayasantachita. And that day I also called one of my teachers, Ajahn Pasano. And so I got to talk about Dhamma with them and what was happening. And I also knew that being able to talk about it would bring more up. Because I don't know if you've had that experience of it all seems pretty even until you talk about it and then a lot more feeling arises. And I wanted to be able to draw it out. So that these are there are skillful means um, when it gets just too intense to be facing what you're working with. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about just kind of like, okay, I feel a little bit funny and I'm going to back away. It's, it's like you really stick with it unless you, you kind of get to the point where he's like, no, I, I need to take a break um, and, or, and take a break and come back or I need to shift um, to another method of working, working with it. So it is compassionate and it is wise. So wisdom and compassion need to work together always. <clears throat> could, you talk, uh, could you talk about what inspired you to become a monastic rather than keep practicing as a layperson and talk a little about the process you took to become a monastic? For me, I became a monastic because you know, my first teacher happened to be a monk. When I was in Thailand, uh, I, I you know, was trained as an cultural anthropologist and they took me to Thailand and uh, by some coincident, quote unquote, I came into a monastery and the teacher in that monastery was a very uh, impressive uh, monk. He was like in his early 80s and it really kind of blew me away, so to say, his presence. And uh, I thought... He was embodying what I had been looking for already you know, for quite some years. I was uh, in my late 20s then. And, uh, or maybe I was just 30, I'm not quite sure. Or there was, I was just 30, I think, yeah. And uh, my mother had just died very suddenly from a, by a horse riding accident. And I was really ripe you know, for some uh, answers about you know, what life is all about and so on. And then when I saw this monk, his name was Ajahn Buddhadasa, I felt like he knew the answers to all of my questions. And I could just see it in his way of how he was just sitting there and the presence, his energy. And that got me interested and I kept, you know, returning to the monastery and, and then I became a nun myself, so to say, because I... You know, I really had the feeling he had learned a lot in this uh, monastic life. And uh, I just thought I'd give it a try. And I didn't think I would do it that long. I thought uh, one more year, one more year, one more year, and then suddenly it was 25 years. <laughs> so I didn't have that you know, interest or uh, <clears throat> intention to do it for so long. But it somehow grew on me over time. Yes. <laughs> this isn't actually a question, but I think I'll read it anyway. Ayasantusika, um, I appreciate your encouraging words about liberate, liberation being possible. I don't often hear about the fruit of the practice. Um, I, I really encourage you to seek out people who will talk about the fruit of the practice. And I'm sure... Ajahn Buddhadasa talked plenty about the fruit of the practice, as what did all the, the, the master teachers I've been around. And they say things like, don't ever think it's far away. It's right here. 
And if we don't hold that understanding or if we haven't developed that faith, then it's, in, it's important to develop that faith. And I'm, I'm thinking of talking about faith a little more tomorrow morning in our reflection time. So um, I know that's a hard word for some people, and I'll use some synonyms as well. <laughs> but um, you really, really, really look for the encouragement that you need and develop, develop the heart. It's the most important thing to do, and everything good in life comes with it. Um, <clears throat> How do you work with anxiety, high pressure, tension, fear-based worry? I mean, the really important thing is to to just you know be, take some time and be with that experience in the body, because you know over time there might be like a lot of you know feelings which have been suppressed, and then when we have the time, when we're on retreat, when there is some space there, then all of this stuff you know kind of comes bubbles up, and it's really important to to pay attention to it and. Uh, you know, and sometimes we have to go and do something about it, you know. Either we have to go and change something in our lives or, you know, change the people we are associating with if, if this is connected with them. Or, you know, have to make some changes. Or sometimes we need to go, uh, you know, take a therapy with somebody because if it's, you know, too difficult to work with on our own, it's just there's no general answer to this other than, you know, it needs to be uh, met, you know, because it's not going to go away by, by just, uh, you know, a surface treatment, so to say, just doing a little bit of loving kindness meditation or something like that and try to uh, kind of put something on top of it. It's really important to go, go to, into the depths of this uh, different, you know, difficult emotions. And that can be, you know, a very difficult thing to do. And quite sometimes we can't do it on our own. We need some help, depending on the intensity of it. But it does, you know, it does over time, it certainly diminishes, but it's like a, a long-term project, you know, like 10 years, 15 years. One or two retreats is certainly not enough, you know. It's It's... It takes time, and uh, there is just no other way than taking the time because we can learn a lot from that. Because it's uh, you know all of the that would you know this would fall in one of the hindrances of actually of aversion and ill will. Fear is a form of aversion, and you know if we if we make a decision to work with it we are learning at the same time a lot from it, you know, because we learn a lot about ourselves, we learn a lot about emotions, we learn a lot about impermanence, and we learn a lot about other people as well. So it's not like a waste of time and you have to get, you know, rid of the fear and then later you start to meditate. It's already, it's the meditation, it's the practice, you know. Whatever is happening, because meditation is not about having a different experience. Meditation is about being with what's happening right now and learning from that because there's nothing whatsoever you know we can't learn from so if there's anxiety then that's the object and then you work with this and then over time it, it will you know we will lose the aversion to the anxiety and the anxiety will also kind of diminish just by you know getting attention and, you know, in awareness, those emotions starts to de-escalate because there's, this is like energy which is caught in a certain pattern and through awareness is a deconditioning process, you know, that energy gets freed up from being, you know, spinning in a certain pattern which we call fear or, aware, or anxiety or whatever you want, whatever it is, you know. But it's, in the end, it's a precious energy which we can't afford to, you know, just throw away. We have to 
decondition it, transform it, and make it available, you know, as, as life energy. And then, you know, once it's, it's freed up from the dysfunctional pattern, it becomes, you know, it becomes a joyful energy. Can the space of emptiness hold everything, including the small self, with love? So, my perspective on the, these words about emptiness and the small self is very early Buddhist. So this question might be coming from a, a sort of a different slant, but I'll give you the early Buddhist slant um, from my perspective, which is that emptiness is the context empty of something. So, for example, this idea of a small self, um, you know, what is that? Is that the body and mind? Is that the body and feelings and perceptions and mental activities and so on and consciousness? The Buddha would say there's no self in any of that. So generally, when we think of a small self, there's a larger self, and the small self is, you know, this conventional being here, and the large self is some more like ultimate being. But that's not the way we think in Theravada Buddhism or in the early Buddhism. So it's, it's like we really want to investigate, you know, what, if anything, has... Um, independence is is able to exist without causes and conditions, and this these ideas of self rely on on other causes and conditions, so they're insubstantial. So when you start to notice that everything's insubstantial and and empty. It changes how we relate. And what's interesting about it is that, in a way, my answer to this question is just yes, because what, amazingly enough, grows as we recognize the emptiness in everything in this world, and our attachment grows less, we become disenchanted and dispassionate with it all, what develops is an incredible, boundless love. But it's loving kindness, it's compassion. And the Buddha had boundless compassion and boundless loving kindness. And that... um, That quality um, does hold everything. This is the question which comes every retreat. Can you explain, if there is no self, solid, unchanging entity, etc., who or what is reincarnated? So it's, you know, it's the quality of the mind stream of... You know, which which is, as long as it is not liberated, as long as there is greed, hatred, and delusion operating in that mind stream, when when one body you know drops away and dies, then that mind stream is kind of finding another body and then you know living on that body, like the, the mind resting on that body until that body dies. And then if the mind stream isn't liberated, it goes to another body. And in terms of an image, you know, we can imagine, for example, if a candle burns completely down and before the flame goes out, we light another candle with that flame. And then when that candle burns down, we light another candle before the flame goes out. And then, you know, is that the same flame or is it a different flame? 
it's both or it's neither nor. So it's it's a paradox, you know, which it can't be really fully grasped with the thinking mind. So, you know, as long as there is some fuel there in terms of greed, hatred and delusion, the flame, you know, will go on. And then once the the fuel is is no longer there, the flame goes out, and then where has it gone? Nobody knows. You know, if you blow out the candle, where is the, where is the flame gone? Did you ever think about that? <laughs> it's, the, it's the same way of thinking, you know. You can't really say where it's gone. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha said, you know, pondering about that uh, is not leading to any result, but you just <laughs> practice, you find out for yourself. Because it can't be, you know, communicated, it can't be really understood. We can speak about it in symbols, but we can't really, you know, have a, um, a complete, you know, intellectual answer for it. But if you are practicing, the question, you know, will just drop away. Because you understand with the heart, you know, and, and the question is not anymore an issue. So, you know, and so it's with many questions in the practice. They, in the beginning, you know, we kind of try to think our way forward in, in the practice. But then the longer we practice, the questions are answered in a different way than we expected. The questions are answered in the sense that they're no longer questions. And for that, you know, you have to just uh, um, just keep on going, you know. What do you think about secularized mindfulness? Um, there are some things that are done that are helpful, and and I think I, I took uh, the training with John Kabat-Zinn years ago, and he talked about um, meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and this was kind of a little conference that was being called. This is right about the time when he had. Quite, done quite a bit with mindfulness-based stress reduction and had some uh, some results. And yet it was it was pretty new and there was a lot of criticism. And this was this meeting with His Holiness was really an evaluation of whether or not that work was going to be supported. And uh, there was another person there who was very much against it. And he had been talking to earlier that day that day. Uh, he was talking a lot to His Holiness about how awful this stuff is. And and uh, then the next day it was John's time to give his report. And he said overnight that night he was really searching himself to think about what would he do if His Holiness said that it's bad and you have to stop. And he realized that he wouldn't be able to stop because he knew he was helping people. He knew that it was helping people. And when he actually talked, when he actually had his chance to present his work and His Holiness um, gave his sense about it, he said, I think there might have been only, is it possible, only like four billion people on the planet at that time? Anyway, whatever. <laughs> you know, like almost all those people who however many there were are suffering. It's like like there's only a billion Buddhists, but there are <laughs> you know many people, you know, suffering who are not. And if you can do something to help that, go for it. So that's one way to look at it, and I think a lot of good is done by taking Buddhist techniques, in addition, mindfulness being one of them, and bringing them into the therapy room and bringing them into medical situations and so on. And yet, I think there's an important caution with regard to some of the ways we're seeing mindfulness applied in the secular setting, particularly for... um, the purposes of um, greed. Um, 
and to recognize that there is a danger in separating these techniques from the complete system that the Buddha laid out because the complete system helps to develop a a healthy um, mind. And when you extract it, it may go out of balance. And if you extract it um, too much from this sort of setting of the whole um, middle way, you may also be actually presenting something that isn't mindfulness really at all, according to the way that Buddha described it, and yet calling it that. So I think we need a healthy dose of discernment and a fair bit of knowledge of what the Buddha actually said about mindfulness and what he actually meant for us to practice. Can you can you speak to the importance of a teacher? I think um, does that work? Yeah. Um, I think you know it's it's important to have you know, to have some kind of a, of a spiritual guide at, at certain times in the practice, and I think it depends very much also on on the on the person. Some people really you know have you know have a need for a teacher other people would feel maybe you know have for them it might be even problematic to have a teacher so I think one can't really make a general statement because you know nowadays there's so many kind of good books and and lots of good tama talks also available on the net I think which can which one can go quite far without having necessarily a, a teacher in person. But I, for example, for me, it was like if I wouldn't have met my teacher and be really kind of impressed by his presence, it might have taken me many, many more years, you know, until I would have hit, you know, so much suffering before I would have been... Uh, finding the practice without that meeting, you know, with the teacher. So for me, it was really very important. And uh, yeah, I think it is really good to have, you know, somebody one can clarify, you know, meditation technique with or certain questions one has, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a teacher. Just somebody, you know, who's a little bit, before us on the past, like who knows a little bit more, is actually enough. And a spiritual friend doesn't necessarily need to be a teacher. And at the same time, you know, your own children, your pets, you know, anybody can become a teacher or, you know, or somebody, <laughs> you know, can teach you things about, you know, human existence and how the mind works. So, you know, it, it really depends on on what you feel, you, you, what your heart is looking for, you know, and, and just follow that, I think, you know. And, uh, but at the same time, you're not, um, you know, not kind of completely giving yourself over to somebody who only because they, you know, practice longer than you or because they wear robes doesn't necessarily mean that they know everything, you know. So I think it's, you know, it's... it's uh, it, it's a balance also, like everything. You know, the, it always comes back to the balance because this is why this retreat is also called the middle way. It's a balance between, you know, faith and wisdom, between faith and, and, and uh, discrimination. And in the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, we have to make our own decisions, nobody else can make them for us, but there are certainly good teachers, you know, who have a lot of experience and some of them, you know, they have a real gift to see what somebody needs. 
a good teacher you know might not necessarily you know, know all of the text but a good teacher can see you know what somebody needs to do next what what where somebody has to kind of visit this or that place you know within themselves in order to you know for the past to open up yeah well, this question was written for me um can you talk about the concept of no self as it pertains to after death? Some Buddhist texts reference reincarnation or allude to the soul, to a soul, but how does the teaching of no self relate to this? So this is similar, obviously, to a question that was answered just a few minutes ago, but I think I want to just say a little bit about it. Um, as Aya Santichita said, there's uh, this mind stream that continues. The way I think of that mind stream is actually the karma that's created, continues. It's a complicated pattern um, built of many thoughts, words, and actions over lifetimes. And along with it is a big dose of craving, that like unfinished business. We want to re. re- we want rebirth. If it weren't for that desire, it wouldn't happen. And it's, um, it is not a self. The Buddha was very clear about this. It's not an ongoing existing self, just as I said. So it's helpful to recognize this and really consider understanding how we create kama and wanting to save, um, you know, kind of like reduce the suffering for the future to the best of our ability. So that's my last question for tonight. How do you maintain or regain inspiration? It's okay, I'll wait for you done. Yeah. you're done. How do you maintain or regain inspiration to uh, for practice? I think there's many different you know ways how to do that. For example, monastic life is is created you know originally is 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 a is a container you know which is which is geared towards you know, having people live in that container for a long time and not lose their inspiration, ideally. So there's lots of imagery around and there's like, you know, certain rituals and outfits, you know, and all of that to constantly remind us, you know, of our aspiration. And, you know, in your own home you can also create that in a little corner or even if you have a room which you can set aside for practice you know where you you know where you kind of uh, create an environment which is inspiring you know by having imagery and maybe some flowers and some photos or pictures of teachers you find inspiring so you know whenever you know the inspiration runs out there is in my case, you know, I, I have photos of my teachers around me in my room and that really helps me to, you know, to kind of feel, uh, you know, energy rising up again when I look at them because I, they, they are much further ahead of me and, and, you know, and they are for me, they are proof for me that it can be done. So I think that's, that can be very helpful or you know, going on a retreat from time to time or being part of a meditation group which meets maybe once a week or every second week that can also help, you know, discussion with spiritual friends. And the Buddha said, you know, spiritual friends are the most important external ingredient, you know, for the, for the path. It's very important, you know, to exchange oneself with others and finding out, you know, that it's difficult for everybody because in the beginning we think uh, we can't do it, we are the only ones, you know, everybody else is just sitting very peacefully. But then you speak to people, they're telling it's completely crazy inside their minds. <laughs> so that helps, you know, 
because then you don't feel so alone with this. And yeah, or going into nature can also be very inspiring. And reading biographies about teachers' lives, you know, that can also be very helpful to see, you know, what some of those people have been going through. And, you know, using it for waking up rather than for, you know, despairing. So there's lots of uh, things. You know, here in, in this room we have tankas, we have the Vaitara tanka there and the Shakyamuni Buddha in the back. I mean, those images, you know, since thousands of years, those images were created because people always had the same issue, you know. When, it got, when the going got tough, they needed something to lift up the mind. And art, you know, in its many different forms can be a way, you know, to lift up the mind and to inspire the mind and, you know, give us energy to keep going, you know. So, and there's lots of that available out there, even, you know, on the computer, on just one little click with the mouse, you can <laughs> see tons of uplifting images if that's what you find, you know, helpful. Chanting is also a way to uplift the mind. So this is the lottery here. Let's see what we have. Well, it's a long one. When I sit lately, and certainly during this retreat, I'm acutely aware of a high-pitched buzzing sound that's somewhat similar to what one sometimes hears when there are lots of electrical wires around. When I investigate the sound, I've noticed that sometimes I hear it on both sides of me and sometimes just on one side. However, I can't, hard, I can't hardly say whether it's arising from the outside or the inside because the boundaries of my body tend to blur when my awareness stays firmly with the sound. Do you know whether this is, um, in fact, just the sound of background electricity or might it be the sound of silence? that Ajahn Sumedho refers to often. If it's um, the latter, you can, can you suggest a skillful way to practice with it? I really like this question because this sound has been my friend for a long time. And um, I don't think it's the electrical hum because I've heard it in the forests in Thailand and lots of other places. And it comes when I get concentrated and when I put my attention there. And it can get quite loud if I put my attention there. And so it is a viable meditation object and it is a, an indication that you're getting concentrated, which is a good thing. And it can be kind of a nice security blanket. Um, it it's really a sound that is comforting, and notice that. Um, if you have some sound coming up that's not comforting, that's disturbing, then it's probably, it's not the, the not a sound or sound of silence um, that Ajahn Sumedho would have talked, was talked about. And... Um, once when I was in Thailand, just before the rainy season, the locusts, I guess it's what they were, some form, were so loud and so much kind of that same pitch that I couldn't hear the sound. And I really um, kind of felt like my security blanket got taken away. <laughs> and I noticed that, oh, okay, then I think there's a little too much attachment to this, <laughs> maybe. So I don't know if that's useful or not, but but uh, definitely um, do some some work with it. I would say if it if it's useful, and don't neglect other kinds of meditation. However, 
see what actually helps you go deep and what gives you the chance to contemplate. So a lot of what I Santichita was talking about is contemplation, that, that ability to take a Dhamma question into your mind and allow it to stay there in a way that intuition arises from deep inside to give you surprising answers. And um, yeah, I think that's probably it. So we end with the chant on page 30, Reflections on Universal Well-Being. Now let us chant the Reflections on Universal Well-Being. May I abide in well-being. In freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself. May everyone abide in well-being, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may they maintain well-being in themselves. May all beings be released from all suffering and may they not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. When they act upon intention, all beings are the owners of their action and inherit its results. Their future is born from such action, companion to such action, and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful of such acts, they will be the heirs. So then we end with the closing. It's on page 13. The noble, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. So I just want to mention we are now over the half of the retreat. So, you know, just really remembering to use the time, you know, between the formal sittings and walkings also as a time for practice. And uh, just when you're getting up from the cushion, when you go to take your shoes and go back to your rooms and, you know, go to bed. Just making that all part of the practice as much as possible and just, you know, noticing when you're carried away and then just starting again. It's, that's all, it's really the main thing of the practice, just starting again as soon as you notice it. You know, you lost mindfulness, you've just been operating on automatic pilot. As soon as you're noticing it, just you're starting again a million times more than that even you know yeah